When I was uh, a youngster in Massachusetts, I used to get sent off to Episcopal summer camp for a month every summer. Uh, in those days, the camp was called Camp Bement. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, camp uh, on the, a beautiful, beautiful lake uh, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Uh, it, it is, that was many, many decades ago. It's now called uh, Camp Barbara Harris in honor of our first African-American uh, female bishop in the Episcopal Church. Um, and Mother Kate's children went to it many decades after I did when it was called Camp Barbara Harris. But back in the days when it was called Camp Bement, uh, we used to sing uh, this song. It was always one of my favorites. And if you know it, please feel free to join in. I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R. I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And I have C-H-R-I-S-T in my H-E-A-R-T. And I will L-I-V-E-E-T-E-R-N-A-L-L-Y. And I have joy, 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 joy deep in my heart, deep in my heart, deep in my heart. And I have joy, 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 joy deep in my heart, deep in my heart today. And that was always one of my favorite songs as a child. I was always so thrilled when we had a chance to, uh, to sing it at camp or, or in Sunday school. Um, but it, is, it represents a framing for Christianity that is very different than the framing of Christianity in today's gospel. Uh, the Christianity framed in that song is one of joy and light and the beauty of the world and optimism and a sense that following uh, Jesus gives us a sense of great peace great happiness, and great contentment. But that does not juxtapose very smoothly with today's gospel. It has in it, I think, one of the most uncomfortable exclamations by Jesus anywhere in the Bible. As he lashes out at Peter, who we must remember is his most faithful and trusted disciple. Theologians say there was Peter, and then there were the other disciples. He was first among equals. Jesus had decreed that his church would be built upon the foundational rock of Peter. He would become the first pope. Jesus provides him with the keys to heaven. And of course, all of us hope to meet him at the pearly gates one day, if not too soon, of course, but at one, at one point. It's really a, a jarring scene uh, and it brings me back to my days. Uh, I'm a fifth-generation Episcopalian and the, the brother of an of a, uh, ordained deacon who will be ordained a priest by the Bishop of New Hampshire uh, in just several weeks, and the grandson of a minister and the uh, nephew of a minister. So I grew up with, uh, with the Bible and Scripture. Um, and in my 20s, I took a little break from being an Episcopalian and became a Baptist. Does anyone know Oakland, California, where I spent many, many years of my, my life? And we have Allen Temple Baptist Church there, a wonderful, wonderful church. And our uh, pastor there, who's now long retired and is in his 90s, when he would get very um, uh, 
cranky about something, he would say, get thee behind me, Satan. And it's kind of a catchphrase uh, within the African-American Baptist community that when if someone is stepping out of line and is not really on the right path, it's a phrase that would be used. To see Jesus, though, use this language uh, with Peter uh, in that particular, particular piece of scripture is, is really uh, uh, disturbing. Uh, he's not just saying that Peter is misguided. He's not reminding him gently that being a Christian is going to be tough. He, he condemns him here. He's so frustrated with him. I think for Jesus, this is uh, one of his... Uh, uh, largest and most difficult burdens to bear, the sense that we as humans don't get that following him cannot be easy. And that if your goal is to reshape an entire world and move it away from avarice and violence and fear and sadness, that the apostles were not going to be thanked by the world for their efforts. You can't point out to someone that they're an anti-Semite or an Islamophobe or homophobic. Most times they're not going to say, why my goodness, thank you so much. You really have set me on the right course. Let me just throw some daisies at you as you walk away. They're going to be offended. And, and as Jesus in the Gospel reading lays out, traveling through the world in this way, trying to move all of these, these heartbreakingly enormous boulders of inequity and poverty and hunger and climate inequity out of the way, that there's, there's not a way to do this uh, and also be getting accolades and be safe and secure. In fact, Jesus says, you're going to be hounded, you're going to be mistreated, you're even going to be killed. Um, I think about the, our own beloved St. James, who when he was an apostle and Jesus was alive, St. James was, as you all probably know, was spending a lot of time thinking about what would his personal obituary say. And when he got to heaven, as you probably know, he was lobbying Jesus. Hey, you know, when we get up there, I want to kind of know where my seat's going to be. It wasn't until Christ was executed that St. James really went on his path to become a saint. And of course, he is the first uh, of the apostles to be, to be martyred uh, for Christ. It's a tough, tough road to be a Christian. It is striking that this had not sunk in for Peter. After all, he's so close to Jesus, first of his apostles. And yet, I think we all can sympathize with Peter. Peter wants to make the world a better place. He wants to work with Jesus. He reveres Jesus as the Messiah. He knows he's going to transform the world. But there's part of Peter that says, can't we transform the world from nine to five, and then I can pencil in some time in the afternoon for some me time, maybe go to yoga, you know, 
go for a nice walk down on the beach, go to Osteria Mama for dinner, get a nice glass of wine, some gnocchi, and then I promise tomorrow morning I'll be right back out there, ready to take on this troubling, troubling path for us. Why can't we have that comfort and the security and all those accoutrements of, of home and then still put on the shield and the armor and go out during the day to fight for a more moral and just world. Jesus' response, though, is so visceral. He, he doesn't accept from us that it's just our naivete. He suggests to us that this is something indolent, something broken in us, that we aren't focusing just on that path. It actually reminds me, we'll celebrate in a few months in January, Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, and it reminds me of Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Many of you probably have read it. Dr. King wrote it on scraps of newspaper and bits of, of toilet paper, whatever he could find there in his cell. He patched this all together because he didn't have paper. No one was going to give him paper because they knew he was a political prisoner and he would write something very, very powerful. But he, he also shared a similar frustration to Jesus uh, in the scriptural reading. Dr. King, in a letter from a Birmingham jail, talks about the fact that our desire to protect our bodies from physical harm is a sign of moral decay. Now, that's really hard to get one's mind around. Why would he write that? He would write it because he was saying the only way you were going to transform American society at that time was for everybody to say, I don't care what happens to me. What I care about is making the society a better place. It's really hard, if we're honest, to listen to what Dr. King said and say, I'm with you. Show me where to sign up. I'm ready to get beaten perhaps killed. And, and also, I think all of us can understand Peter's reservation here and his hope as he takes Jesus aside. Maybe he could convince Jesus there's an easier path. But I do think this is what it means uh, to be a Christian. It's not possible, I think, for us to really, as human beings, ever attain what Jesus and what Dr. King are laying forth for us. And that might be difficult, difficult for me to say and maybe difficult for you to hear. I think the path of being a Christian is constantly failing and trying to get there. Mother Kate and I share a mutual friend, my, my old priest up north, I, I was proud to be a member of his vestry, uh, at St. Augustine's Episcopal Church in Oakland, Dr. Monrell Williams. And Dr. Williams used to say, if you're really a true Christian, it's a lonely and difficult path. It can't just be written in the book for Sunday morning and then afterwards going to have brunch at Dupar's. Hashtag blessed. You know, we can't do that if we're really, really following the path of a Christian. Dr. Williams said, no, it has to be a hard path because your job is to evangelize and to heal the sick and comfort the poor. But boy, it's tough to do that. 
And that's why I think when we think about church, we need to think about it not being a place where those of us who get it are showing up and saying, this is the club of the folks who are following Christ and we get it. But rather, this is a place where we all meet each week and say, here's how I failed. Will you forgive me? And how did you feel fail this week? And I'll forgive you. On the other end of the spectrum with children, back at that song I shared at the beginning of joy, 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 joy deep in our heart, I think there's a way to frame that difficult scriptural reading with that song I started with. And at St. James Episcopal School, we're working to build that approach. Our children start at St. James at two years old, and they end at 12, and then are off to middle school. I'm looking at Betsy, who is the mother of a proud alumna, who is to this day, I don't know what we would do without Neville, she's still very involved with our school and vice chair of our medical advisory task force that has navigated us through this pandemic. But from our earliest ages, we work with our children to practice empathy and kindness and curiosity and grace so that when they do get older and they get to that really rocky part of being a Christian and they're going to fail just like we are, that they have that sense of empathy and kindness and curiosity and grace to be able to forgive themselves for stumbling and then get right back up and continue down that path. Our school has wonderful, wonderful programs. Most of our graduates go on to Harvard-Westlake or Marlboro, where Neville, I think, went uh, to Marlboro. Um, and uh, uh, we have an outstanding academic program. Our robotics program, which starts in kinder and goes all the way through six, is one of its only, one of, one of a kind in Southern California. We have a one-to-one -one device program where every child's given a computer to use for their work. We have an outstanding theater arts and dance and instrumental music program. All of that's very important. But to me, my favorite part of our work is our work with St. James Parish, with Father John and with Mother Kate. And I think I saw Kathy Helm uh, back there with the food pantry. We joyfully call the parish food volunteers like Kathy and Margaret Ecker. Uh, we call them the food faculty over at the school. And so much of our work is about teaching children about food insecurity and housing insecurity. Our sixth grade is literally right now, like with hammer and nails, building their own food pantry, which will abut St. James Hall, so that every week it'll be filled with potatoes and rice and beans and tortillas and canned soup and peanut butter and granola bars and they're going to bring it all over every week to support the parish's food ministry. On Fridays, our older kids are working with Margaret Ecker and with Father John on coming to serve and help with the distribution of meals. And many of you know our sixth grade last year. Sometimes I go to them and say, won't you consider making an annual fund gift to St. James Episcopal School? And they said, no, we want to do a gift 
for Project Hope in the showers. We've noticed that the folks who show up have nowhere to sit. Mr. Reinke, what if we were to raise funds to buy these beautiful chairs that people could sit in when they're there? What a wonderful idea, and, and they did it. I share the story, uh, I've shared it before, I think, of, of Maya, one of our sixth graders uh, from uh, the year we first went into the pandemic, and I went into their class to say, I'm sorry, this quality, wonderful education you've been enjoying, that your parents are paying a lot of money for, it, it's not going to be continuing for the next several weeks. We're going to try to build an online program at home. We didn't even know the word Zoom at that point if you can believe it. And we're sharing this with the kids, and Maya's hand goes up. She didn't miss a beat. She said, that, that all sounds important, Mr. Ranke, but I only have one question. Who's going to feed the hungry if the sixth grade isn't at St. James for the next several weeks? So I can, with confidence and humility, talk to the fact that these kids, as they finish at St. James and then go on to middle and high school and college, they're going to always keep with them that deep sense of what we like to call servant leadership. Even though in 20 to 30 years, as they're marching down that rocky path of Christianity, they're going to stumble too. But just like us, if they tackle that path with a sense of grace and a sense of it's a race well run and it's going to be a marathon, and it's going to take us our whole lives to get there, so that at the end of the race, when we get up to those pearly gates, we're going to get a pat on the back, and we're going to be told that was really a race well run. And I'll end with this idea, that as we're running that race and passing the baton to one another, I think as Christians, we should expect that we're going to drop that baton more often than we're going to pick it up. And just to have the grace and love for each other to say, don't worry about it. Here you go. Here's a baton back. Take another try. Because our religion, in some ways, is this process of failing and getting up and trying again, and then failing maybe a little less and getting up and trying again. Amen.